May 18, 1954, 12.59 p.m. Slanted rays of dust-spackled sunlight illuminate the floor beneath the windows. Although life has not been absent long from this place, it feels as if death has reigned here a hundred years. The air smells stale, unused, like that of a newly opened box after a decade shut away in a closet. But my perception is skewed and I know it. The past has altered what I am experiencing this warm afternoon in the great room. Until two days ago, this air was breathed. It was circulated by fans and open windows, and electric bulbs illuminated it. I closed the front door and set my suitcase on the sofa, relieved to be unburdened of its bulk. Thirteen years have passed since I last laid eyes on these walls these haunted rooms. The occasion for my visit then had also been a funeral. Most of the great room's furniture is exactly as I remember. The dark blue armchair, on which Pastor Wainwright sat that fateful night of the violin's demise, the love seat where Mama and Daddy, clad only in a large quilt, fell asleep by accident one night, only to be discovered by Walter early the next morning the coat rack next to the front door, though with an assortment of jackets and hats I don't recognize, and, on the mantel above the fireplace, the clock my grandfather gave Daddy. I listen for its faithful, familiar ticking and realize it has gone silent. Fitting, I suppose. Its years of service have come to an end. There is no need for it any longer. It, too, may rest now along with the many other souls of Asphodel Glade. With nothing but time on my hands, I wander the house, although it spent a season as a cozy inn under Abigail's watchful care, I see that the home has undergone a recent restoration. It appears now much as it did during the happier years of my childhood. Daddy's study, which for a while served as the lower-level master suite, has again become home to hundreds of books. The large desk is new, but it fits nicely where the old one once sat. Against the south wall, beneath the high window, is a twin bed with tangled sheets and an unkempt quilt. Its last sleeper never returned to tidy it. I go to the kitchen next and discover that its appliances finally received the upgrade they needed for so long. The cupboards, once bare hardwood, have been painted white with green trimming. A refrigerator hums steadily where the old icebox once was. The hybrid wood and gas stove, which Abigail refused to give up until the day she died, has likewise been replaced by an electric range. The dinnerware hutch is the only fixture in the kitchen which appears unaltered, but for the slow, scouring marks of time. When I round the doorway into the dining room, I find that the magnificent table hasn't moved an inch. I'm not surprised. It would have taken a construction crane to hoist that colossus out of here. Even the chairs, solid maple, remain tall in their proper places, vigilantly waiting to serve whosoever might need them. I cannot linger here. An uneasy tension looms in the dining room's atmosphere, 
something which sets my innards to trembling. It came and has not departed since the night my father gave his bourbon-fueled description of Mama's rotting corpse. As if haunted by the nymph Echo, the room whispers of the terrible things he shouted at us. Like a pyrograph burned into the maple tabletop, I see Pastor Wainwright's mouth hanging open in shock, Abigail forcing her hands over Pip's ears, and the despairing faces of my brothers. And yet, as terrible as that night was, the worst was still to come. I shudder and return to the great room, but the demons follow me. Now I see Mama collapsing onto the sofa, flushed with new fever. I hear Walter's howls of agony and watch him drop to the floor as Mama's earthly husk is carried out the front door on a stretcher. A phantom blaze lights up the hearth, and in it I see the blackening remains of my grandfather's violin. I watch my father sink to the floor, numb with shock, after hearing the news Sheriff Clark came to deliver. My pulse has quickened. Grabbing the suitcase in both hands, I hurry upstairs. Here I squeeze my eyes shut and inhale a few slow breaths. I remind myself that the past is the past and will myself to be braver. Though today I am a middle-aged man, courage still doesn't come to me naturally like it did for my big brother. Bravery was a reflex for him, while I must persuade myself to do what is best when what's best is also difficult. And it will be difficult indeed, facing and finishing all that I came here to do. At the furthest end of the dark hallway, a door remains closed. Although I once was daring enough to risk a journey into the room beyond it, I will not find the strength to do so during this visit to Asphodel. It would demand too much of me, and I must conserve whatever emotional energy I possess for the more important matters at hand. With this in mind, I turn right at the top of the stairs and enter my bedroom. What I find inside nearly knocks me over. No longer is it furnished in the generic fashion which inns tend to use for their transitory guests. Mine and Walter's childhood beds have returned. All eight posts fitted precisely into their worn grooves in the floorboards. A similar story rings true for our dressers and homework desks. Walter's old posters, discolored by age and creased from years of storage, hang pinned to the wall over his bed and desk. My collection of books has been restored to their small shelf, and as I read their titles, I remember fondly the stories contained within them. Everything is arranged exactly as it was in the spring of 1919. Exactly as it was on that dark night at the end of March. Daddy, I whisper, awestruck. You remembered? After all this time? But he is not here to answer. As I step into the room, I stumble over something lying on the floor. It is thin and straight and hooked at one end. A cane without an owner. This must be where he fell. Below it, forever discoloring the floorboards, is a bloodstain. Even the memory of my fight with Walter is no longer hidden beneath a throw rug. 
It was an important chapter in our history, and the beginning of a painful one, and Asphodel Glade's most recent owner wished it to be told along with the rest. Exhausted from both travels and memories, I set my suitcase on the floor beside my bed and collapse upon the musty blankets which cover my mattress. Within moments, I am asleep. Hours later, I awaken to the sound of light scratching. Something familiar, lost in the dark recesses of my mind, acts like a trigger on my resting body. I shoot up in my bed, searching frantically for the source of the noise. It is coming from the window over Walter's bed. The blinds are raised, and the knotted end of their pull cord is scraping gently upon the window sill, set adrift by the thermal air rising from the radiator below. Or perhaps by an invisible hand, revisiting its final moments here. I shut my eyes and try to divert the memory, but it is hopeless. Soon Walter's window is the only thing I see. Although there is no hand to move it, the dusty glass panes slide upward in their track, opening to our castle home's eastern wall. Like the dense gravity well of a black hole, the window's expanding mouth pulls me toward it, into it, and down. For the second time today, I weep freely. Although the window remains closed and unlooked at, I see Walter's face in it, cloaked under darkness, yet bright with determination and hope. For a moment he stares at me, giving me one last chance to be brave, to join him. Then he slides down and out of sight and is gone. <laughs>